Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Rob brings us a message where we take a look at what we can do with the power that God has given us. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Rob. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at South Harbor Church. We're grateful that you came out. We're never quite sure on holiday weekends. Like, is everybody going to be gone? Is everybody taking this final? This is like the final. It's the last gasp of summer for many of us, isn't it? Those, who has kids? Everybody's kids back in school? Anybody not have kids back in school yet? Oh, there's a couple. Well, yeah, those of us whose kids are no longer going to school. That's, that's the category I find myself in these days. So I have no idea what season it is until it gets cold again, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But I am looking forward to a couple of really beautiful days, kind of extend summer today, tomorrow. It's going to be lovely out. Let's all enjoy these days as long as we can, because as we all know, winter is coming. We, do we always have to be the harbingers of a doom? We, but we are, aren't we? <laughs> December's coming. Um, hey, I want to pick up. Uh, we've been in a series for a while uh, in the book of Genesis. So if you're new with us here today, thanks for coming. We are kind of down the road in this very long sermon series on Genesis. And so we've been talking about a lot of different things leading up to this week. Today's going to be a continuation of the story. Uh, so I'll do a little bit of recapping in just a moment. But before I jump in, I want to talk about, uh, I want to uh, mentioned something that was said last week. So last week, Pastor Tim was up here and he was talking about Joseph and Joseph's role in Egypt. And uh, Tim said something that I thought, what just kind of really caught my ear. And as somebody that knew that they would be up here preaching this week, I, I was thinking about this this week. But one thing he said was that when he was preparing this sermon for last week, his question and his prayer was, who is this message for? Who is this message for? And as a pastor and as somebody that preaches, I, I asked that same question. And Tim's answer last week was that sermon that he preached was for himself 20 years earlier, right? Some version of, of Tim that existed years ago. Um, and I totally understand and, and I can resonate with that feeling because many times uh, I'm reflecting on the way that I used to think or what I used to understand Scripture as saying um, and trying to integrate what God has been teaching me over the years as I've continued to read Scripture and study Scripture and read comments, commentators and all that kind of stuff. What has God been teaching me over the years and how is it different from what I used to understand? Um, and so my sermons have a tendency to come out of that process. And that doesn't mean at all that I have all things figured out. Oh, I finally figured out what this really means, and here's the final product, and I can just tell you, and we can all go home, and our Christian life is, is complete. Um, that's not true. But oftentimes there are subjects that we are called upon to teach or to preach uh, that challenge who we once were. Like, and Tim mentioned that last week. It's like, oh, this would have been something good for me to hear years ago. Uh, and so I try to communicate something that I believe God uh, has been working on in me, in my life. And then my hope is that there are one or two of you uh, that it also means something to. <laughs> so that at least somebody leaves here with maybe some new 
view into who God is, perhaps, or what God's calling us to do. So part of my faith in this process is to have faith in what God teaches one of us can be good for the rest of us. Um, And one of the things that I want to say that's been helpful for me over the years in all of, really all of my faith journey, but also in the way that I I preach and the way that I present scripture and the way that I lead people through scripture, is that um, I have learned and tried very hard to understand all of scripture through the life of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is this, that if the nature of God the very nature of God is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ, the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, then we should be looking to Scripture, in any part of Scripture, looking at Scripture to show us signs of Jesus throughout Scripture. All right? And that means Old Testament, New Testament. Where is God's nature coming through? We have Jesus. We have this clear example God says, this is who I am. Jesus says, I am the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. So if we have that clear vision of God's nature, then we should be able to see, in some sense, right, Jesus throughout all of Scripture. And this is important to me because I believe that God has always been leading his people to something better, right? Old Testament, New Testament. He's always drawing people closer to himself. He's always drawing people closer to the example of of being like Jesus. And so when we look at scripture and we see things happen that we think, oh, that's just wild. That's crazy. How how could something like this happen? It doesn't seem like I see the nature of Jesus in this thing. Then I start to look for the ways in that scripture. It's like, well, where is God's nature coming through? What do we see God calling us to in this moment? How is God moving his people uh, more toward himself and more toward the person of Jesus? So today, today's scripture, we're also going to talk, we talked about power last week. We're going to talk about power a little bit more this week. And today's story tells a story that for some of us um, might be something that we've kind of all dreamed about at one point in time. And I'll explain. Today's story includes a situation where somebody was wronged, right? And not just wronged, but I mean like really, really wronged. Somebody was betrayed, betrayed to their, like their whole life was betrayed. And uh, betrayed completely. And today, uh, we're going to read about when in this person's life, the tables are turned. So suddenly now the person that was betrayed, that was put in a horrible situation, that was left, um, abandoned, this person now is in a position to get even. And as I was thinking about this, I'm like, this is the kind of movie we like to see, isn't it? Like, we, we, you go to see a movie, and the good guy at the beginning, he gets picked on or bullied or he gets abandoned or, or, or abused or whatever it is, and then the great part of the movie is when that person gets you know, gets the power in their favor, and they get to call the shots now. Um, We like it when the bad guys get what's coming to them. It's true. And I'm going to speak for myself here and say that I'm totally guilty of fantasizing about things like this in my life. (laughs) Uh, If you've ever been wronged by someone, a friend, I've got a couple, I've just got a couple stories in my life where I, I found out that when I wasn't in the room Somebody I thought was my friend was saying things about me that it wasn't even true and it wasn't nice. And I'm like, what did I do? Like, what did I even do? I've had that happen. I, coworkers, 
fellow student, we, this is the experience we've all had. Somebody's done us wrong at some point, right? And, and, and maybe, it's a, maybe it's even deeper. Maybe it's closer. Maybe it's a family member. I think a lot of us have had somebody in our family that has hurt us deeply, deeply wronged us. Somebody we totally trusted, somebody we, we totally were in relationship or we thought we were, and they turned their back on us. How does that make you feel? How does it make us feel? And what kinds of thoughts does a situation like that create in our mind? And I will say that I've always had a little bit of, I would call, an overactive sense of justice. Uh, so in other words, I can easily say that as, certainly as a younger person and even a kid in grade school, um, I could easily say that I, I leaned into wanting to people know, wanting people to know when they had done something wrong. I want people to know that this is wrong and I want them to a, at least feel bad about it or at most something should happen to show them what that felt like, right? Some other sort of, of revenge. They should be punished for what they've done, um, so that's a glimpse into my broken nature. We can have a conversation about that. I am seeing a counselor. Um, and I, but I imagine that for some of us, or maybe all of us, there's a little part of us that that rings true for, right? We kind of want justice. Well, today we're going to continue on the story of Joseph. We're going to talk about power, and we're going to talk about Joseph's big chance to get back at the people that wronged him. So let's recap a little bit. If you haven't been here before and you're going, who's Joseph? Joseph is one of 12 sons. 12 sounds like an important number. Just remember that. 12 sons of a man named Jacob. Now, when we talk about these guys, we're talking about the Hebrew people. And when we read about them, we read that they honor and revere uh, the, what they call the patriarchs, the fathers of their people. And these are the people that God made his original covenant with. So Abraham, who's the father of Isaac. Isaac, who's the father of Jacob. Jacob is Joseph's dad. Now, Jacob's name, it's, even as we read scripture today, you're going to hear two different names. You're going to hear Jacob and Israel. Because in chapter 35 of Genesis, that's when God gives Jacob a new name. He said, your name is now Israel. Uh, Israel, eventually this family becomes a huge nation of people, the nation of Israel, um, and they're divided into how many tribes? Twelve. Huh, that's convenient. Twelve sons, twelve tribes. I wonder how they came up with that number. Anyway, Joseph is one of these twelve sons of Jacob and Israel, and if you don't know the story behind Joseph, Joseph was favored. Everybody's got a favorite kid, right? No one's going to raise their hand, unless your kids are gone, in which case. Um, Jacob was favored by his dad, and he was favored for a couple different reasons. One, he was the daughter of the wife that Jacob loved the most. The one that he initially wanted his wife. That's a, even that, when we talk about scripture and Old Testament stuff, you're like, well, that's weird. The wife he loved the most? How many? He had multiple wives. But he was the, the oldest son of that wife, and he was born when Jacob was older. And so Jacob was an old man, and he got this son finally from uh, from his wife, and he and so he favored him. And because of his father's favoritism, and because Joseph also happened to have some very prophetic dreams that put him in a really good light and his brothers in not so good a light, his brothers didn't like him. They were really jealous of him, and they were not only 
jealous of him. They hated him. They hated him to the point where they decide to kill him. And so they're out with Joseph at one point, and uh, in, instead of killing him, Reuben, one of the brothers, says, hey, you know what? Don't kill him. That's a bad idea. Let's not kill him. And everybody said, okay, we won't kill him. We'll just throw him in a, in a well, a dry well. And then as they sat around with him in the well, some guys came by and they said, well, let's just sell him. We'll sell him as a slave. So, they, so Joseph was sold as a slave. He ends up in Egypt and he eventually rises to power um, when he interprets some more prophetic dreams um, for the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is the, is the ruler of Egypt and Pharaoh elevates Joseph to the highest position of power in the country, second only to himself. So Joseph ends up uh, having been completely abandoned, having been sold into slavery, but ends up in this position of power. And this is where we get to pick up that story today with him and his brothers. Because now there's famine in the land. In fact, the, the dreams that Joseph had interpreted told that there would be a famine. So what Egypt did, knowing a famine was coming, was they stored food. And so now they're prepared for this famine. But this famine is throughout all of Egypt, but it's also all the way into the land of Canaan, where Joseph and Joseph's family, his father and brothers, still live. Joseph, given his powerful position at the Egyptian government, has been put in charge of giving out food. So anybody that comes that wants to get food from Egypt has to go through Joseph. And as you'll see in the passage we are about to read, this creates the perfect situation for Joseph to get even with his brothers. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 42. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 42. We're going to start right at the beginning of that chapter. And it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? <laughs> Which this made me laugh. Sometimes people are just people. What are you doing sitting around? What are you doing? Why do you just keep looking at each other? I think that's just a funny thing for a dad to say. He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us so that we may live and not die. That sounds like a good idea. So then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Benjamin is the other son born of the same wife. So Joseph's full brother. Um, and he doesn't send him because he's afraid that something might happen. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. <clears throat> then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers. They were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. 
And Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. So here's Joseph, right? He's in the perfect position to get even with his brothers. He's the one that anybody has to come through to get food, to survive this famine. And his brothers show up, and they're right where he wants them. Because not only does he have the authority to do whatever he wants in this situation, his brothers don't even recognize him. Last week when Tim was talking about Joseph and his rise to power, he did a few things that not everybody would have done. But one of the things that he did was he adapted his look to the Egyptians. He showed a picture. He shaved his head, shaved his beard. That seems like maybe just a little thing, but it, it was enough that his brothers didn't recognize him. But of course, he recognizes them immediately, and he does exactly what I imagine I would do. He makes them squirm. No, you're spies. He knows exactly who they are. He knows exactly why they're there. He knows they're not spies. But he really kind of digs in, doesn't he? Three times. No, you're spies. Um, but he's not quite ready to pull the trigger yet, right? Because his first thing, right, his first thing that he wants to know about is the father. How's the father doing? And what about this brother Benjamin? In fact, why don't you bring him back? Why don't you bring him back here, and then I'll know that you're telling the truth. And his whole first plan is to send one guy back and hold them all, right? Keep them all imprisoned. He changes his mind. We're going to talk about this right now. So on the third day, we're jumping back in. On the third day, um, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. And here's where he changes, he changes the deal a little bit here. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here, not all of them, not all but one. Let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. So he's threatening their lives here. <clears throat> you have to bring your youngest brother here. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another... Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, <clears throat> didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he had been using an interpreter. So up to this point, he hasn't even let them know that he knows what they're saying in their own language. He turned away from them and he began to weep. But then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. <clears throat> Now, at this point, I'm not exactly sure what Joseph's end game is, 
Like, I'm not, ex- I'm not exactly sure what he wants out of the situation. There's a lot going on here. I'm not even sure he knows what he wants yet out of this. But we do know this. He wants to see his brother Benjamin. Regardless of what else happens, he wants his brother Benjamin brought back. And maybe he thinks that he can not only regain his brother, but then also maybe punish his other brothers at the same time. If he can just get Benjamin back to Egypt, maybe he can pull off both of those things. But something happens in this, in this text here, right, that begins to change something in Joseph's heart. Joseph hears his brothers talking. And he hears them in their own language talk about how their misfortune, why they believe that their misfortune right now is due to their own lack of compassion and mercy on his life. We saw how distressed he was when, we, when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And Reuben, at least, is absolutely convinced that this is the reason why, that what's happening right now is directly impacted by their previous actions. He says, didn't I tell you? It's the Old Testament version of, I told you so. I told you this would happen. Joseph, in this moment, responds with weeping. And so I try, to, I try to put myself in Joseph's place. Like, what, what is he feeling in this moment? Maybe it's just the reminder, hearing them talk about what they did to him. Maybe, maybe it was just the reminder of that, that sense of being completely abandoned, left by, gotten rid of, almost, almost murdered by his brothers. Maybe it's that emotion. Uh, or, or, or maybe it's a desire, an actual desire, to be back with his family to have it be what it once was or what he at least thought it once was. But something hits home for Joseph in this moment. It says he weeps. And the Hebrew word for this is bakah. And it, it, it literally means to weep. It's not, it's not ambivalent in its meaning. Because <laughs> sometimes Hebrew means like five different things. And sometimes this could mean, oh, maybe he teared up. He was a little sad. Maybe, no, this means weeping. So in this moment, something big is going inside, on inside Joseph, and he's weeping. One of the um, definitions says to weep or to, to bewail, I think, is one of the words. But then the other one says to weep in, in grief or, or humiliation or joy. Like, these are big feelings going on for him right now. I imagine all of the there's some of that emotional pain. There's trauma. This is traumatic. You throw somebody in a well and then you sell them to slavery. That's pretty traumatic. That stuff is all coming up. So of course he weeps. These are deep wounds for him that are being uncovered. And that bit of honest remorse, I think on his brother's part, actually does something within Joseph. But I also think that Joseph seems to recover from that moment because he continues on with his plan. He changes it a little bit, right? He sends all the brothers but one back. So in this sense, he's changed his plan, but there's still somebody is being held. He actually secretly takes the silver that they brought him for food. He has it put back in their sacks. Is that a, is that a nice thing? Is he, is he saying, I'm not going to take your money? Is he also giving himself an edge to say they stole food from us? They still have all their money? Look, we don't know. The brothers will interpret it as, uh-oh, he's got another thing over us. He's got more power over us. What if they think we stole this? Remember, Joseph is the second most powerful 
person in Egypt at this point. He's a friend of the Pharaoh. He has the power to do whatever he wants in this moment. And to me, it looks like he might be teetering between grief and sadness and a desire, maybe, for family and his maybe baser instincts to really put his brothers through it. Not sure. Let's pick it up again, pick up the story again in chapter 43. And this is going to be back in Canaan. So it says, Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. Again, before we just take this at face value, I want to just point out the fact when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt. <laughs> so they left Simeon in prison. They went back home and they didn't do anything <laughs> for a while. <laughs> they went through all the food that they had bought for their family before they even had another conversation that we know of about going back. So let's continue on. But Judah said to them, or to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us, do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Again, just going to pause a moment to say there's way too much here to continue to unpack everything. But I love the fact that they said, well, he asked us all these questions when we just read that they had offered that information. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on, but that feels like me in junior high school and my parents say, why did you do that? And I immediately figure out how I didn't do that. It was somebody else's fault. I just want to point that out. We're going to keep moving. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. So finally Judah, logical Judah is going, listen, send the boy with me. We're going to run out of food here again and we're all going to die. So we might as well take a chance. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, and this, is the, this points this out, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. I wonder what Simeon's thinking. <laughs> They've gone a long time. Probably a little worried. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. <clears throat> Put some of the best products of the land in your bags. Take them down to the man as a gift, a little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. I love Jacob being a little bit like, maybe that was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me... If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. That word bereaved, by the way, means to grieve the loss of someone, almost always meant in losing someone to death. If I am going to grieve the death of somebody, I will just have to do it. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, 
and they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. So let's go back. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of this passage because I want to talk a little bit about this moment, right, where we realize that they have been home for a while and they haven't done anything. They haven't decided to move forward. They, haven't, they just haven't made a decision at all here. And I'm wondering, what is, what is Jacob slash Israel, what is he thinking in this moment? And I think what he's thinking is, I've already lost one son. I've already lost one son, and I, I know the grief that accompanies that. I don't want to lose any more sons. He's presumed him dead for years, and worse yet, this was the son that he favored, right? I mean, for better or for worse, we can say that that's good or bad. It, it, it was what it was. But Jacob obviously favored this one son, and he has lost that son. He's been dead for years. And now he's got Joseph's younger brother, younger brother from the same mother, um, and he has held him back from the task of going with his brothers to buy food, right? He has not let Benjamin out of his sight. I imagine it's because he's already lost Joseph. He doesn't want him uh, to suffer a similar fate. He doesn't want him, uh, he doesn't want to risk Benjamin's safety on a, on a risky journey to another country to buy food. So now nine of the sons come back with the news that another son, Simeon now, is being held in Egypt unless they send Benjamin, the youngest son, back. Back to that man to confirm that the brothers are not spies, but simply there to buy food for their family. And so I think Israel's heartbroken. Like in his head, I, I'm sure he's thinking, there's no way I'm going to not, I'm going to lose somebody. And he says, why did you tell that man that you had another brother? Well, I, yeah, he's still grieving the loss of Joseph. Why would you do that? Why would you even let him know? So finally, he consents. He lets, he lets Benjamin go with him with the, those words, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. He's sort of given up hope that he's going to come out of this unscathed. And so he has given all he can at this point to try to feed his family. He sends them all back to Egypt with Benjamin to try to get food and to come back with hopefully Simeon and Benjamin. And now it's all really up to Joseph, isn't it? What's Joseph going to do? Last week, we talked about power and what do we do with power. And remember, Tim said, it's complicated. It's complicated. This is a complicated moment. What will he do when all of his brothers are there? He finally has all the pieces in place. He can get his younger brother back, right? And do what he wants. He can keep him in Egypt. Get rid of his other brothers, the ones that abandoned him. Verse 16 tells, it when, tells us that when Joseph saw them and saw that they had indeed brought Benjamin with them, he told his servants to prepare a meal for them all. Hmm. They're to eat with him at noon. So then we, we expect, right, this is, is going to be the moment. <clears throat> Something's going to happen. This last passage for today tells us how that meal goes. We pick this up at verse 24. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys, they prepared their guests for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. I can't imagine what that, for, like, what did that mean for them? He wants to have a meal with us? Wait a minute. Totally, I would be freaked out. When Joseph came home, they presented him the gifts they brought to him. 
And they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Joseph here confirms that they told him about him, right? How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. And as he looked about, he saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, And he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. And after he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So what a moment in the story, right? This is sort of the culmination. After all the deception the hidden identity, the requirements that Joseph put on his brothers in order to return for food. The trap is truly set for him to have his revenge. But I don't think that's what we see happening. There's a few things uh, that stand out to me in this passage. First, Joseph asks them, how's your father? Is he well? Is he alive? Is he well? He's still wants to know about his dad. He has no idea whether his dad knows what happened to him or not. He assumes, I'm guessing, that his dad doesn't know. But he wants to know. And the next he looks around the room and he sees Benjamin, his mother's son. As the passage puts it, his own mother's son. And he blesses him. He says, God be gracious to you, my son. And then finally he breaks down again. This is the second time in these two chapters that Joseph weeps. This time he leaves the group, he goes to his own private room so that nobody sees him weeping. Uh, And then he washes his face, presumably to cover the fact that he's just been sobbing. And he goes back out to join his brothers in a meal where he literally just feeds them. There's no trap in this moment. Now, unfortunately, this story continues for a couple more chapters before the big reveal. So we don't get to talk about that today. Um, What we do talk about, what we do get to talk about is the fact that Joseph has the power to do anything he wants. He has the authority to deal with these men as he pleases. And justice would say that he should do something punitive for what they did to him. And instead of giving them what they arguably deserve, he chooses to use his power to help them. And then as they come back with his promise that if you bring your brother, we'll send more food, um, he invites them to to sit and eat with them. And nothing has changed really between him and the brothers, right? They don't even know that that's their brother, but even if they did, would they have apologized for what they did? How would they have even responded? But that hasn't happened. They haven't apologized for selling him into slavery. They haven't apologized for lying to their father about what happened to him. 
I looked into this and I was wondering, like, when did he ever find out? And it turns out most scholars think that they never even told Jacob what happened. Even later in the story, when other things happened, he probably never found out. Joseph shows mercy. He has them right where he wants them and he shows mercy. And I think if we go back to the beginning and what I was talking about, trying to find Jesus in all of scripture, I think this is the moment where we see the glimpse of Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, right? The nature of God, what God desires of us, how he desires us to be. If we look at scripture through the lens of Jesus, this is the moment that we see Christ enter the story. Because this is the kind of mercy that we see Jesus exhibit, isn't it? When we read his story, isn't this who Jesus was? I think about every month here at South Harbor, we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, right? And we share bread and wine or juice in our case uh, together. And we remember Jesus' words to his disciples and we imitate their last meal together. The teacher with his students in his last days. But who was at that table with Jesus? Who did Jesus eat with? <clears throat> All but one of those people would abandon Jesus to his fate. Only one was at the cross. One of them would emphatically deny that he even knew who Jesus was. And one of them would literally lead Jesus' killers to him in the garden later. That's who sat around the table with Jesus. And yet knowing all of this, what did Jesus do? He washed their feet. And then he served dinner to them and ate with them. And Jesus would eventually hang on a cross, beaten and whipped and spit on and mocked. And he would advocate mercy for the people that had done this to him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If we're going to model our lives like Jesus, then we have to be prepared to respond like Jesus. And I know that's not always easy. And I know that there are situations that are, that are complicated. I get that. And at the same time, I think that this is what God is ultimately pointing us to. This is what he wants to see. Joseph foregoes vengeance on his brothers in favor of reconciliation with his family. Jesus foregoes vengeance on the religious leaders who called for his crucifixion in favor of reconciling not only them, but all of creation back to God. And when we talk about helping people find their way back to God at Harbor Churches, I think this is what we're talking about. Because when we came back to God in our journey, instead of judgment and revenge, we received mercy and reconciliation. That's what God offers us. Therefore, instead of dealing out judgment, we extend mercy and we extend grace so that there can be reconciliation between God and his people and all of his creation. And if God is reconciling all of creation to himself, and if we are the hands and feet of Jesus, then it means that we are the instruments of reconciliation that God uses to draw all things back to him. Just say that again. If God is reconciling 
all of creation back to himself, and we are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, then we are the instruments of reconciliation that God uses to draw all things back to himself. I want to close just by reading a passage of scripture. And this is a passage of scripture that um, was drilled into me for many, many years when I was on Young Life staff. And it was usually going into harder situations and trying to figure out how do we be Jesus in a hard situation? Uh, but I think this, is, this passage of scripture points directly to what I just talked about in Jesus, how Jesus responded to the world that rejected him. So let's just read. This is out of Philippians, and this is Philippians chapter two. If you've been around the church a lot, you're gonna recognize this, but I want you to just listen really closely to this passage and what it says about who Jesus is. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let this passage be the one that shines through. Even these Old Testament passages that seem so unrelated, find Jesus in those moments. This is what God is calling us to do. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we thank you <clears throat> um, for today's story. Thank you for the moment of, um, of decision that Joseph has to make here. We thank you that he chooses, instead of revenge and making people pay, he chooses to reconcile with his own family. Thank you for Jesus and the model that he gives us. The fact that he can look at us and say, come to me. Come to me. Regardless of what we've done, regardless of who we are, Jesus invites us to be in relationship with him. We thank you for your mercy, Lord, your mercies that are new every morning, and we pray that we would experience those in a real way today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. 
And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.